Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hey guys, it's Chris Shepard with your Westside Investors Network podcast. Just wanted you all to be aware there is a little bit of foul language in this podcast. So there's your disclaimer. Enjoy the show. Our guest for today is a real estate investor, mentor, podcaster, and renowned speaker. He loves teaching students about purchasing properties using other people's money. He will share with us how to identify operators and the right team, the benefits of a thought leadership platform, and finding opportunities even during inflationary times. So without further ado, let's welcome Marco Kozlowski. All right. Today, we've got Marco Kozlowski with us. Marco is a boutique real estate investing mentor, author, and trainer. Additionally, host of the podcast, Big Fat Real Estate Checks. Marco, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. (laughs) Hello, everyone. My name is Marco, and I've been at the game since 99. I was born in Canada in 1972. If you want to go that far back, I was a concert pianist. I'm a musician and it was very difficult to make any money as a musician. Uh, married young, had four kids by 24 years old. I uh, was a stay-at-home dad, didn't really want to mortgage my time working for someone else. Wanted to figure out how I could take care of my family. Discovered real estate through an infomercial of all things and started my journey almost 23 years ago. And went through a lot of waves, a lot of learning, made a lot of mistakes, probably made more mistakes than most and survived them. And just a matter of learning from your mistakes, getting up, brushing yourself off and keep learning and been at it for a very long time. Started in single family, then went into luxury, flipping luxury properties, did very well with that until the crash of 09 and lost pretty much all of my assets in 09, had a few hundred of those and also got remarried for the second time prior to that spouse decided to take all the money and disappear that we had saved up over time. It was millions and millions of dollars and had to start all over again back in 09. And I actually wanted to almost oust myself because she just took the money and disappeared. And it was a really hard time emotionally. And of course, during the crash, it was difficult to deal with all the things that were happening. But the opportunity was at that time to pick up properties on the cheap. We're connected with some banks that were giving us tapes of assets, which are basically a microfiche of different assets they have on the books that they wanted to sell. We were buying three-bedroom, two-bath properties with a pool, around $10,000, $15,000 a piece, but if hundreds of those using other people's money. I would find money from investors that wanted to put the cash in. We'd split it. They got control and I did the work. They brought the money Yeah, and then went into multifamily, which is what I do now. Buy hotels, motels, assisted living facilities, anything that's multi that basically can be third-party managed because I hate managing. I don't like Jerry Springer tenants at all. Anything that I can mortgage without using my credit. I use a lot of asset-based lending, which we can discuss if you choose to. And I show others how to develop the skill sets necessary to get the right deals at the right price in order to get an asset-based lender involved. And an asset-based lender is not hard money, but it's decent interest rate, cash, 
and we make the spread on the difference. So we find an asset that's significantly discounted. Let's say it's worth a million, has $100,000 in cash flow. We pick it up for six fifty. We can discuss on how I do that. We do a lot of we do about fifteen hundred units a year. So we were very aggressive at purchasing, and we make the spread. So if the money costs us forty five thousand a year, the property makes a hundred net, not gross. We make the spread, and we do it over and over and over again. And not used my credit to buy an asset, and actually ever because I'm Canadian, didn't have any credit, <laughs> didn't know how to use a bank because I couldn't. So I had to get really creative very quickly, and I've developed this process of finding the right assets with lenders that need to use cash. And there's billions of dollars available if you really understand how money works. And as long as the lender is pretty much at risk close to zero, because if there's enough equity in the asset, then their default rate goes from 8 9% to almost 45%, actually 42.5% technically. So the lender's really don't care if they take it back because they make a lot more and you just, and then you can still go buy another one because you just made them more money. So it's kind of like pawn shop money without the pawn shop experience, if you will. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, starting over had to be pretty tough. Like, and it sounds like you switched asset classes there too. Like what made you want to get into multifamily? It was the only asset that went up in value during the crash. So (laughs) most people panic when times are uncertain, which is depending on when this gets released, nobody knows you know, what's going to happen in the future. But there were 12.6, I believe, million, for, it might be 12.3 or 12.6. It's over 12 million foreclosures between 2008 and 2012, meaning there are 12 point something million people that need to rent because once you have a foreclosure, you can't qualify for another mortgage. So when you have that many humans that are now in the rental space, it drives up supply and demand meaning that rents can increase. And I had these apartment buildings purely by chance. It was not something that I planned. In fact, it was complete happenstance, fluke, was what it was. Saw the opportunity there and went, ah, I've been in the wrong business all these years. So then went straight into multifamily, mobile home parks, anything that I can manage with another human doing, a quality human that's taking care of the tenants to make sure the tenants are well taken care of. With good tenants that are well taken care of, they don't mind renting increases if you really take care of them. And good tenants means good cash flow. Good cash flow means you can have a phenomenal lifestyle. So I'm more of a cash flow buyer than I am in the real estate business, really. Nice. And just to give our listenership an idea, like what sort of markets are you enjoying now? I'm assuming that you're in several different markets from the sounds of third-party management. I will go wherever the money is. If it's in Toad Suck Ferry, Arkansas, well, you got a pretty smile with all them teeth and it has the right cash flow with the right lender. I don't care because it's third party managed. I can be in any market. The key is really getting the right property at the right price to get the right lending and make the spread. So the location isn't as important to me as the cash flow. Yeah. And I'm, we're property managers as well. So we typically do the management ourselves. We feel like we have a lot of control with that. So this idea of using third-party management is pretty interesting. And I'm assuming that like when you go into a new market, you're identifying that operator. I mean, the oh, yeah. property, pro- I mean, like you could buy right for sure, but like if that property is mismanaged, like that could run into a huge problem. Like what are you doing to identify managers? It's not a super sophisticated process. We go through first well, the, are there at least three property managers that will do the checklist of things that we want them to do and need them to do? And if they have gone through that checklist and we tell them straight up, like we pay our managers a little bit more aggressively than most, 
We pay 10% on the front end. We don't nickel and dime our property management at all because generally if you tie problems like, hey, there, you know, every time we go out and do something, then there's going to be you know, a fee or this fee or that fee. So we've dialed it into a point where we pay well, plus we also pay 1% of the refinance as well because the objective is to buy it, optimize it, and refinance it. So we give a carrot at the end of the cycle in order to make sure the property management really knows what they're doing. So we vet them with the right questions and experience, and we make sure that their behavior is in line with what's best for the tenant first, the project second, and ownership third. And if the property management puts themselves first, then they're gone. So we have some riders that we add to management contracts that I've learned the hard way because you're right. You know, there are two things that will really screw you in this business. One is not buying it right. A lot of people are buying retail, which to me doesn't make any sense. And number two is bad property management. And I've had a lot of bad management over the years. It's like saying, you know, I'll never use another property manager again because they really screwed me over. It's like saying, well, I had a really bad divorce. So now I'm no longer going to women. I'm going to men. (laughs) Not going to happen. So for me, you know, I'm sure there's some that will do that, but not for me. So it's just finding the right entity, right people, the right group that understands it and gets it, that understands that they're part of a community that really, if they care enough, they'll get very well paid. We want to take care of them. And it's a long-term relationship at the same time. It's we're on the same team. It's not us versus them. It's how can we work together to really create the best experience for our tenants. So they're proud to live where they live in the community that they live and they don't want to leave. And that's a good tenant for us. Yeah. So Marco, like you've been in the business since 99 and you started podcasting three years ago or so. I think we started, yeah. Was it three already? I think it's two. Yeah. Two, three, whatever. Yeah. So I guess what drew you to becoming a podcast host and what do you feel like were the benefits of it? I mean, you're still doing it. So obviously you're still reaping those benefits. And what do you feel like is the vehicle that you've created or the machine that you've created? I want to give value. So it was a natural progression to just give humans value. There's a lot of humans that want to learn how to buy assets, want to do it the right way. There's a lot of noise in our space, as you know. Everyone's a guru these days. They bought a house in 1964 and now they're a guru or, you know, did one deal and suddenly they're teaching others how to do it, which is, you know, to each their own, but there's just a lot of noise. And I just wanted to ensure that those that found me knew that a, I give value. I give to give. I'm very blessed. And, you know, I've gone up, I've gone down, I've gone sideways. I made some terrible decisions, made some good decisions. And I've learned a lot about business and taking care of people. When I, in my twenties, it was all about how much money could I make and, you know, screw everyone else. I didn't care, which I guess it's a 20 year old attitude, which really bit me in the ass. Then I went into the education space where I just cared about how many people could I fill in a seat and the value wasn't necessarily there, which also bit me in the ass. And I had to learn the hard way that if I don't take care of people, then they're never going to, the karma is going to be terrible. And I paid for those lessons throughout my forties. And I worked really hard since then to go from a guy that wants to have as many humans as possible to teach, to be selective as to those that are in the class that I teach. It's very boutique. As you said earlier, I have about 25, 30 people that I teach eight times a year and that's it. That's all. It's on Zoom. It's virtual. Just anyone from anywhere in the world. 80% of my community is not in the United States. I teach foreign nationals how to buy in the US since you don't need credit. So it's done well for me because now I have the time that I want. I have 
quite a few units, built up a portfolio at over 6,000 before I sold off just over 1,000 in 2021. I knew what was coming. So I want to have my lifestyle, my time, and I want to be able to help others that really want to be helped and have the time in order to do that in a boutique way. And if I have too many people, I can't really give any attention. So it's like having too many wives, you know, you can only give good attention to one. <laughs> I don't have a wife now, but if I was remarried, it's, you know, uh. having five wives, I don't know how anyone does it. You know, it's, that's a lot of attention to give to people. So I want to make sure I'm not cannibalizing or making promises that I can't make. I've stopped doing that years ago. So I don't know if that so, answers the question, but there it is. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Yeah, and so, I mean, AJ and I have found that like hosting a podcast, like we're able to, one of our core values is mentorship and, you know, sharing the knowledge that we have. We genuinely want real estate professionals to like dive into real estate investing and, you know, receive the blessing that we've received in terms of the great run-up that we've had. We started investing in 2006. And so, but one of the benefits that we've kind of seen along the way in starting the podcast is that we get to talk to amazing people like yourself. And, you know, we never would have met you if we didn't start a podcast. <laughs> and like, it's just such an awesome like benefit and not really something that we expected when we started podcasting. So that's been cool for us. Yeah. Where you start is never where you end. I think you're going in a direction, but you're learning so much more. It's very rewarding. It is. The people, the giving, the understanding, meeting different, you know, quality people that are aligned with whatever you're doing. And it's refreshing. And you build some really great connections doing that. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, like in the run up, I mean, I'm sure you get a lot of questions about, you know, the rise and fall and the great, great recession and but I mean, so many people are talking about recession right now and having somebody on the show who has gone through it. And I mean, it sounds like, you know, it was a pretty big like crash and burn. And, oh, yeah. you know, what lessons did you take away from that? Not make it about me. Money is a result of giving value. And I was really tied to money back then, like money, money. And so my ego was attached to how much I had accumulated. And then when I was removed, it was extremely painful and I had to realign my values. And only when I realized that I wasn't as important as what value play could I create in this cycle, in this economic cycle, whether the market's going up or down or sideways, or, you know, it's, officially a recession because if you know you're i think it's the gdp is negative two twice in a row and it has now they're trying to redo the you know the definition of recession. whatever that is you know because <laughs> the white house wants to have their own definition so relax we're not in a recession we're just in a recession but whatever you know <laughs> the reality is it doesn't matter what are the politics the politics don't really change what's happening 
necessarily. It does, but it doesn't. If people are in pain, they need help. And whoever is in power, it doesn't really matter for the person that's in pain, right? You can blame everything, but I just look at it as different waves and I can either fight the wave or ride the wave. So with inflation, the way it is now, it's significant. And those that own assets now will benefit from inflation. More millionaires, billionaires are always created during high inflationary times because the assets go up in value with the inflation, right? In 1970, the average property was worth 22 grand. That same property now with inflation is now worth over 650. So had you bought a property in 70 for a discounted asset, let's say you bought it for 15 and had, let's say an asset-based lender that allowed the property to actually cash flow, and that debt didn't go away, it was still the exact same $15,000 debt today. Well, guess that $15,000 debt is now worthless because of the equity that's there. So technically inflation crushes debt, if you think about it. So my message is get in as much real estate debt as possible. Just don't personally guarantee it if you can. And that's all I do. I don't, we don't buy anything, hotels, motels, assisted living, you name it, apartments, mobile home, parks, whatever. We do not personally guarantee debt. So we take debt structures that are available if you know how to structure and underwrite deals correctly, which is what I teach. And then you just buy as many assets as you can. So as inflation rises, that means rents are going to go up, which means you're going to make more cash flow, which means you're going to be fine if you buy a lot of assets now. And you don't care if inflation goes up because you're not getting a paycheck, which is being you know whittled away, whittled away. You're on top of the inflationary curve versus being crushed by it. So whatever the cycle is, roll with it and profit and help people. That's it. That's all I got to say about that. It's pretty incredible over the last 10 years that you've you know amassed that 6,000 or 5,000 units. Yeah, just over um, four, yeah, 4,600 and so. Yeah. Like, so less, less what, what are the type of deals that you like really like? And like kind of maybe take us through like, I don't know, kind of underwriting one or what are the type of deals that you like? I know that you've said multifamily and then I see mobile homes and I heard you say assisted living. a lot living. of hotels. Yeah, hotels. We hotels. had an assisted, yeah, about a 600 bed assisted living facility not too long ago. The deals that I like are actually the complex ones that challenge me. Simple deals are not really exciting. When you do it for a long time, you want challenge. It's like you're a fisherman at first. When you start fishing in the real estate space, you just want to catch any fish, right? Just, I want a damn fish. Just give me a fish. <laughs> And then as you start catching fish, you want to catch maybe a bigger fish. I want to catch the big fish. And then as you know how to catch big fish, then you want to just catch the most elusive fish, the hardest fish to catch. And that's kind of where I am in my cycle. And real estate for me was never what I love doing. I like the cash flow that allows me to do the things that I really enjoy. I like traveling. I like eating. I like spending time with my kids that are now in their almost 30. I like taking care of my parents. I have side businesses. I started a few bars that I turned around. I like growth. I like being useful. I learned something about myself in that no matter how much money I make, if I don't do something positive, if I'm not going in a direction where I feel like I'm really being useful, I start decaying very quickly. And I don't want to do that. So one of the reasons I started a podcast is, and mentoring and helping people that really do want to impact change through effort. Right? It's just not get rich quick, as you know. There are things to learn. There's attitudes to develop. And if you go through that, I guess I want to say the pain, it's not really that painful, but just through the struggle of learning something new, it's very rewarding. So now my kick, honestly, is not the deals that I do. I don't do that many. I do maybe one or two a year now. I just don't need to. When you, when you make enough, you just I'm not that motivated by how many deals I can do. I'm really 
jazzed by a student that knows nothing and closes a hotel, makes $160,000 at closing and makes $400,000 a year that completely changes their life. Feels amazing. That is a high that I love. And I say that because we just closed one three weeks ago with a student and those were the numbers. So no money out of pocket, you know, made a shit ton of money on the front end and there's a huge upside and, you know, things are going well. So he's going to buy second, third, and I've changed not only his life, his family's life, but, you know, those that by having quality management, the people that were at that hotel now will have a completely different experience. The team is better. Everything grows. Everything's better. So we're really helping things grow and profit at the same time. You know, profit is not, you know, a four-letter word for a reason. You know, it's nothing wrong with it. I don't know if that answered your question or not. I go on tangents. Yeah. I have ADHD. <laughs> eh. so, so the deals I like doing uh, are the ones that I get to help people with. How's that? Yeah. Well, it, it kind of so, sounds like the ones that you have, like you said, a challenge, but I mean, you know, if you're, it's probably some significant component of value add. I mean, it sounds like you're very passionate about adding value. Oh yeah. There has to be. Well, we don't buy retail and we don't buy stabilized assets because there's no value in that. We're not buying, we buy and hold, but we buy to optimize, to refinance because that's the play. You buy right, you optimize it, and then you pull money out when you refi, which is tax-free, as you know. And you move on to the next one, right? So, or do two of those at the same time. We're working on a, what, 200, 200 unit. It's a hotel that was closed down in one of the five best markets in the US. We're picking that up for about a million bucks, real cheap. And the upside is when it's done, probably close to 20 or 30 million and probably have to put five in total. And I know these are big numbers if you're just starting out, but the money's available if you just know how to structure the deal. So it's not the money that's the problem. It's understanding the value play in order. And that's mentorship, which you guys are all about. Get the right mentor to show you what to do and tell you what to do in full time and then just do it. There's someone that knows what to do. Just do it. And now this hotel is no longer abandoned, you know, negotiated no taxes for five years, you know, because the city just doesn't want this shit anymore and they don't want to condemn it because then they have to destroy it and no one's going to fit the bill. So there's a lot of interesting things that happen politically as well with some of these assets that if you just know what to do, it's a path to making a ton of money, a ton. But the driver can't be the money. It has to really be improving things because everyone wants as much money as possible. But if I locked you in a room with $10 million and shut the door, you'd be dead in not very long. So it's money. It's by itself. It doesn't even belong to you. If you take a look at what a bill says, it's property of the United States of America. <laughs> doesn't belong to you. So it's money itself has is just money, yeah. but it's what it does and how it, you know, the things that you can do or the impact that you can have that really makes a big difference. And that, can, that brings you money. That's the result. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I feel like you've touched on, I guess, your values. Like when I asked, you know, what did, what did you learn from the crash in 2009? Like your answer was, you know, that it can't be about me. Yep. And so, you know, that's a little glimpse into your, your values and what, and like how values can create opportunities and how values can, you know, really shape how you do something. So I'd love to hear more about what your values are and how you think those help you accomplish what you want to accomplish? I think serving others at the highest level, to say it better than I did before, if I can change my answer, please. It's really serving others with the highest integrity possible without making promises that you can't keep based on what I want. 
every seller is selling for a reason. And if you can really get to that core reason and structure a deal where it really serves them and happens to allow you to do the deal, because everyone wants a deal. A lot of people, and I hear this a lot, I want a deal, I want a deal, I want to make money, I want to make money. I said, well, okay, that's all about you. If McDonald's said, you know, no meat this month in any of our burgers, because we want to make more money, they'd go out of business, right? So they're giving value first. They're listening to what their customers or what the seller or us as consumers need, and then they're delivering that. So it's the same thing in this business. If you have a seller, it starts with a conversation about what they want, but it really should turn into a conversation as to what they need. And from what my values are, it's I can't serve another human without listening to what they're really saying and listening to what their needs are and being honest in that. I know you want $3 million for this million dollar asset, not going to do it. Like even if I wanted to, the numbers, I'm a slave to the money just as much as anyone else. I want to be able to give you the money to move on to your next thing, whatever that is, but these numbers won't allow it. And the only person that can change what you're looking for is you. So I know that this number that you desire, not going to happen as much as I want to. So I'm very warm with people, but very cold with numbers because if I don't get the right price, I cannot help them. And if I'm not straight up with them and saying, no, this is not going to happen. The numbers won't allow it. And it's not putting myself in the line of fire. It's not putting, you know, you're asking too much. That's they're the problem or I'm not, or I can't do it. Then I'm the problem. Don't have enough money. It's really creating an environment where it's me and the seller against the bad guy, which is the numbers, the cash Because at the end of the day, the cash makes the decision, right? At least in my world. So, you know, I want to give you what you want, but this number is not going to happen. So to distill that as much as I can, it's really helping someone serving at a level where you can be honest with them and be okay with them saying no as well. It's okay if they don't take the offer now, because as you know, the fortune is in the follow-up. So they might not be ready today, but maybe in 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, follow-up. Fortune is in the follow-up. I like that a lot. So you mentioned the inflationary environment and how you know there's a lot of opportunity to you know, for millionaires and billionaires to be made, what, like, where are you seeing these and where do you think that there will be opportunities during this inflationary environment? Well, if you take a look at the market right now or speak to a real estate agent, there's a lot of agents that are now trying to exit being a real estate agent because it was easy for the last few years, right? When the interest rates rise, generally that means the money is harder to get or you can't buy it. There was a fund that was buying in California at a 3% return when the money costs you a lot more than that. It doesn't make sense. If you're paying more interest than the money that's coming in, that's not a formula that's necessarily going to work. So if money is cheap, it's easy to afford or have the cash flow serviced by the money that's that you're generating. I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but as interest rates rise, it's forcing the uh, slowing down the market, which means that if someone really needs to sell and they need to sell in 60, 90 or 120 days and it's not selling, not selling, not selling, that means now there's, if someone needs to sell something, they're more prone to a discount because they need to get rid of it quickly. So as the market slows down, it becomes more and more from a seller's market to a more of a buyer's market. And I remind you that we're buying 1500 units a year. In 21, we bought 1500 
in 2020, we bought almost 3,000. We were three units shy of 3,000. We did very well in 2020 because of what was happening in the cycle. So the more there's a disruption in the cycle, the more opportunity there is. So I see a huge opportunity and we're already seeing it. We're buying hotels at half price of what we were buying at a year ago, like half. And we're buying really good deals then and now they're even better now. So there's always a segment of the market which is going to be more affected by the down cycle than others. So by knowing what to buy when will help you hedge your bets as things change, right? So to answer your question is in the simplest way possible, whenever there's a disruption in the cycle, there's always opportunity. Like there was opportunity in the great recession or the great crash. That was the right time to buy as many assets as possible. And if you had bought those properties now, had you bought even 10 of them, right? And we're buying these in Las Vegas. You'd have $6 million in equity today plus, right? So just by buying and holding it. So that was a good time to buy. Yeah. I've been waiting 14 years for this because <laughs> right now there are 43 million defaults compared to 12.6 back then. So it's significantly higher now than it was. Are you getting those statistics from like mortgage companies that are putting out like forbearance information? Yeah. And, we, and we, that's we, coming we, to fruition finally? Or? We have a legal team that pulls all this. We have someone that works within my office was a senior economist and also an accountant for KPMG and did stuff for so he pulls this data and he's kind of a nerd, love him for it. So there's some really neat data, neat stuff coming. Chase just hired, I think, 3,000 loss mitigators, which is definitely an indication that, you know, shit's about to hit the fan, which is great. And there's a lot of indicators that are saying that things are going to go in a certain way. So again, none of us can predict the future. My crystal ball broke back in the 80s. I don't have one. But as we start communicating with a lot of humans. I'm blessed in that I have students that are marketing a lot and I can see the shift happening and the number of deals and opportunities coming in is significantly more this month than it was last month than it was the month before. So our marketing hasn't really changed. It's just, it's better. Our response rates are higher. People are more apt to wanting to get out of things quickly. If you're used to having a property or you know that everything on in the area or your agent said, yeah, we sold this, you know, something of similar size and it was gone in 45 days. And now it's 60 days in and every offer is significantly less than what you're asking. It's an indicator, right? So yeah, I just see a great opportunity for a lot of reasons. I like how you like come back to like, you know, make the numbers, the bad guy, like yep. it's, yep. you know, it's that pro forma and like how it's gonna, you know, turn out in the end. And I'm assuming that you're still bullish on multifamily and income properties. Like as you know, if there's 46 million homes that are, you know, in foreclosure or whatnot, then, you know, those people, what you say are turning into renters. And so that would mean that the economics of renting places is going to go up. I'm as bullish as I can be with humans that are realistic with their prices. And the amount of multifamilies we're buying in 2021 is vastly different than the number we were buying in 2018. So the market's been propped up significantly by these funds that are scooping up assets at more than way more than they're worth. And, you know, we get some multis here and there. We might buy maybe two or 300 units a year on multis, but we're also looking into hotel conversions that we can take a hotel and convert it into a multi, which would be a lot cheaper and we can buy it for a quarter of the price. So 
numbers are really, again, the deciding factor. And if a property is, you know, there's even a blind squirrel can find a nut once in a while. There's always a deal to be had somewhere, but I like science versus luck. So if the market is too hot and prices are unreasonable, then we'll go create an opportunity by doing a conversion of some kind and buying it for a quarter less. And if we buy it for a lot less, we're still ahead of the game. Even after, you know, if you're into it cheap enough, the margin of error is vast, right? So even if you screw it up and you're over budget by even $2 million, you're still $5 million ahead, even if you screwed it up. So, and again, these are big numbers for someone that's just getting it started. But again, if you have the right people that know, here's where you get the money, here's where you get the people to do this, here's all the who's that you need on your team in order to do it. And here are the questions that you have to ask. And you have a mentor that's next to you telling you what to do and how to do it to make sure you're not screwing it up. You're going to be fine. So I don't recommend anyone, you know, buying an abandoned hotel based on a pro forma that they have no idea what's really going to be that are inflated numbers. I don't know what's going on. It's like, I just started being 14 here again, where, you know, you want to make sure that you've been with someone that's gotten the battle scars of things of Murphy rearing his ugly head every step of the way. And if you have Murphy factored in every step, then you're going to be fine because Murphy doesn't generally happen everywhere. But if you factor in with numbers everywhere it possibly could be, and you're still ahead, then you're good. Yeah. It's just being conservative on the pro forma and making sure you have contingencies in there. Oh yeah. 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 Murphy. If if everything goes right and you're planning on that, that's probably not a good plan. It's a terrible (laughs) plan. So Marco, you mentioned 43 million, I guess, either forbearance or defaults. I have not heard that. I mean, based, you know, on the mortgage, Mm -hmm. the laws that got changed in 2009, I forget what the law is, but most borrowers have to have very high credit scores and have to show like great income to be able to get a loan. So, I mean, I understand, but having to do that doesn't stop them from not making a payment. And yep. if the inflation is, you know, 8% per month and you're struggling and underwater and COVID, if you think about it, listen, COVID, no one was working and prices were sky high. It doesn't like if there's no revenue coming in, how are people buying more property? It's transversely doesn't make any sense. I'll pull the articles after this. I can't do it immediately, but I'll send you the data that we have and take a look at it. And cool. It's pretty, we'll it's we'll put that sobering. in the show notes. It's pretty sobering. It's very. Sobering. I mean, that's just kind of a shocking number for me to hear, and so I'm sure that our audience, if they're listening to this, they're like, "That's it's that's bad. a." Uh, so we'll, yeah, I'll appreciate getting yep. that data from you. I'd be delighted to send it to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, macroeconomically, you know, aside from inflation, like the job market you know, the labor market is really, really tight. I mean, just operating our business, being property managers, it's really difficult to find good employees and we have to pay them a lot. So, I mean, that would seem like that is, well, that's the wage price spiral, which happened in the seventies. And it is, you know, not a good spiral for the economy. Nope. Especially for the middle class or the lower middle-class earner without assets. And the gap is getting bigger. Like, you know, 50s, 60s, you could have a minimum wage job and still buy a house. No way you can do that now. It's not the same. And, you know, one of the reasons as well that I'm in this is my parents retired thinking that they would be fine and they couldn't afford to live. It's very sad to see 
people that buy into the illusion that they work for a company, they get retirement and they're going to be fine. But with everything, <laughs> with the cost of what it is to live, it, let alone retire, as most people think, oh, I'll retire. You know, my financial advisor says I need this amount of money in order to live. Well, it costs you more money when you're retired because you want to do things, right? You're not going to work every day. You want to travel, which costs more than going to work. So, you know, there's a lot of, it's very scary to see where things are going. And if I can really educate and give value to those that are ready to listen to, hey, wake up. This is the time, A, we're in the right cycle to buy. Here's where you get the money. Here's where the opportunity is. And you walk through the door, whether it's with me or anyone else that teaches this, just get the right information and do it because I'm not the only, there's a lot of ways to skin the real estate cat, as you know, a lot of angles and just do something about it because your future is your future. And yeah, it's very scary for someone that I would be terrified not knowing what I know now and just starting over again, it would terrify me. And I don't know what to say about that other than you got to do something about it. Or if you do nothing, it'll take care of you. But I'm not here for doom and gloom. I'm a very positive person. You just have to do something. So Marco, I really like Ray Dalio. He is a little bit of a doom and gloom guy, but he also, you know, is like in the end, these are things that you just have no control over. What you have control over is your productivity and productivity trumps all. If you're productive, then, and if Americans are productive and, you know, then our GDP will go up and, Essentially, productivity solves everything. So learning and getting better and doing is just all you can do. Absolutely. And the right productivity. Yeah. Not just, not just be productive to be productive, right? Absolutely. Right. Quality. Well, we're getting towards the end. Oh, Let's do no. our four questions. I'll start us off with the first one. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Get out of your own way. It's not about you. It's about serving and helping others and listen to what they need. Go out and go give it to them and learn how, if you don't know how to help them, learn how. Or find someone that knows how, because there's always someone that knows more than you. And if you can align yourself with that person and make a small piece of a lot, it's a lot better than making a big piece of nothing. <laughs> That's our dad always says that, you know. 10% of something is better than 100% of nothing. Amen to that. <laughs> okay. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? I started a music school. And that was awesome. Yeah. First tell, time. tell us about that. <laughs> well, I was really good at creating it. I was really bad at managing it and people. I had no business skills whatsoever and it flopped. And we had to shut it down because the monkeys were running the zoo. They were telling us what to do. And I did not know how to say no. I did not know how to, I didn't understand really the big objective and making the right decisions that are aligned with the right objective. So for example, in the bar that I turned around, our objective is to really make sure our guests have the best experience possible or experience bars. One is a year round Halloween bar. It's called cocktails and screams. And <laughs> our objective is simple. Make sure the guests have a great time. So if a bartender is not creating they're backed up or they're slow or they're not customer concentric, then they're not aligned with that objective. It's very easy to get rid of them or have a conversation saying, this is about, it's not about you anymore. It's about them, the guest. So if everyone's aligned and rowing in the same direction, it's very easy to course correct if everyone is aligned with that same objective. So they're not necessarily working for me. They're working for the guests and I'm protecting the guests. 
that makes sense. So once you're aligned with that vision and understanding, it gets very easy to get people in line to what the big picture is to have everyone row in the same direction or it's bad news bears very quickly. Yeah. I like that a lot. It's our sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. All right. Next question. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Well, I was a concert pianist. So my formal education is very little as far as university goes. I dropped out of pre-med and, but it taught me discipline. And it also taught me to me not going to med school taught me that I need to do what I love doing and enjoy doing, not necessarily what I have to do to make my parents happy. Cause I had to be an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. That was it. Those are my four choices. And I went in a t- totally different direction. So, because that's what I couldn't be in a position where I had to do something and didn't enjoy it. That's just my personality. So I learned to suffer through hard times in order to get to the good times. Do what I have to do now so I can do what I enjoy later. I like that. I can't remember which book I read, but there's like the concept of work and flow and like that 10,000 hours that you get to become an expert. Like you have to enjoy the work, but it's like a lot of people will scratch the surface on something. Like we talk with real estate agents and they're like, oh, I want to try this social media stuff. And then I want to try this and I want to try that. And it's like, with your concert pianist, like you had, I'm sure you had to practice a ton and it like probably at some point wasn't that much fun, but putting in that work really got you to a point where you kind of excel and then it becomes exponential, the growth. Yep. If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. That's my personality type, but you have to find the fun in what you're doing or it's not going to work well. So it's very much aligned to what you're saying. And I see a lot of people putting a lot of hours into something but they're not putting in 10,000 quality hours or putting in, you know, they're basically watching instead of doing watching hours. I can watch Netflix for 10,000 hours. doesn't mean I'm an expert in anything. Yeah. Right? So it's not necessarily the time you put in. It's the quality that you, and the attention that you put in, that's really going to matter. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Okay. And our final question, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? I don't think I made any biggest mistakes because every mistake I celebrate now. So the mistake that I made was not celebrating my mistakes because if you don't learn from what you did, then it is a mistake. So I think there's a culture of not wanting to make a mistake, but I think if we all celebrated whatever we do and it doesn't work is figure out what did you learn from that and grow from that which would be much better because in school you make a mistake, you're held back, you fail. You know, there's a lot of negativity around mistakes, but every business is built around making mistakes and making things better. Well, that's the worst it's ever going to be. So now let's make it better. How's that? Yeah, that's good. I think that's awesome. (laughs) That is a great frame to put all of your mistakes into. Honestly, I think we're going to steal that for our meetings. Who made the best mistake? (laughs) And celebrate it. Yeah. And it'll change the culture of everyone that works with you because everyone wants to hide and doesn't want to admit if they did something wrong, which is very cancerous. But when it's celebrated, they're excited to share with you what didn't go well. It actually creates a lot more growth very quickly. So that's super cool. Yeah. That culture of hiding mistakes is, I think, terrible. Yeah. We have a weekly meeting. I'm going to write a book about this. I'm going to write this down. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you can probably incorporate shame in there too. There's a lot that goes with that. There is. Yeah. You know, it's, but there shouldn't be. No, no. Celebrate it. Good for you. High five. Yeah. We celebrate mistakes in our environments. 
Well, fun. Marco, so if our listeners want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, funny you should ask. If you want to learn how to use other people's money and develop your skill sets in order to buy as many cash flowing assets as you choose without using your credit or risk, go to win, W-I-N, MarcoRocks.com. That's winmarcorocks.com and learn all about what you need to learn about. And of course, there's the podcast, Big Fat Real Estate Checks, which we're very proud of. 1,500 five-star reviews. Pretty happy about that. So yeah. Nice. Love helping well, people, love giving value. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Well, appreciate you coming on your wealth of knowledge. I appreciate the value that you bring in. I appreciate you appreciating it. Thank you, Marco. What a blast. <laughs> appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.